Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're exploring how everyone can be advocates for racial equality. We're looking at the topic through the prism of UBS's own efforts to extend race and ethnicity to its global agenda. This mission takes many forms throughout the UBS organisation, from accountability and transparency to investing in ethnic minorities, from improving the culture to leveraging the bank's core strengths to, on a global level, updating training to include education and awareness with race and ethnicity embedded. To help us understand this mission, progress made and challenges ahead, our panellists today from UBS will explain the importance of diversity, equity and inclusion – They will consider, too, the theory versus the practice. They will talk about education and best practice, and they will provide some practical advice and tips for how to drive enduring change. My colleague Monocle's Carlotta Ribello was the host for the panel. Gathered around the mics were Maura Gallagher, Head of Diversity, Ethnicity and Inclusion for the Americas region, as well as Global Wealth Management, and out of Zurich, both Karen Yen, General Counsel for Global Wealth Management at UBS, and Chet Antolia, who works in the Digital Platforms Organisation in UBS Investment Bank. Here's Carlotta, kicking off the conversation. Let's start with you, Karen. This idea of diversity, equity and inclusion continues to be you know, a hot topic for corporations generally and specifically in financial services. Why is this of such importance and what's the value add? Thanks, Carlotta. Maybe I'll start with the value add and then finish with why I think it's important. The first is something we can observe and the second is something that I feel. At a basic level, our differences are what make us interesting. So take a dinner party with people from different backgrounds and interests. That's more likely to be a fun party. A workplace with colleagues from different backgrounds and specializations, that's probably going to be a more interesting workplace. Our differences also drive innovation. There are lots of studies showing that in a team where people have the freedom to voice their unique perspectives, their ideas, these teams are more likely to rise above consensus thinking and average outcomes. These teams will be more innovative in their approach. On the other hand, If you have a problem that you need to solve and you ask the same group of people who grew up in the same place and went to the same schools to solve that problem, odds are that they'll come up with the same solution time after time. It makes perfect sense. So for a global company that serves diverse clients, the ability to understand, communicate, and adapt with these clients, whether we're talking about new tech millionaires or female investors, is essential. And it's this adaptability and range that leads to more innovative solutions for your clients. So in this way, DE&I values and shareholder values go hand in hand. On top of the business case for DE&I, we should also ask ourselves, what do we think is the right thing to do? And what role can we play to reduce inequalities? While the events of last year may have brought the topic to the forefront, the need for diversity, equity, and inclusion is not a fad. Injustices continue to run deep in our societies. Last month, 20-year-old Dante White was shot to death by a police officer at a routine traffic stop. He had an expired license plate and an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror, which is prohibited in Minnesota. Every day I read a new story about an Asian person, most are the same age as my parents, being humiliated and brutalized in broad daylight. It takes my breath away. And while the discourse in Europe and other parts of the world may be different, the underlying problems are the same and are rooted in racism and xenophobia. This is why it's important that DE&I is an integral part of an organization's values. And more importantly, these values need to be felt 
and lived in an authentic way beyond words on paper. Chetan, I'll come to you now. Is there anything you'd like to add from your perspective on what we just heard from Karen there? Yeah, sure. So firstly, I couldn't agree more with everything that Karen just covered. But one thing I'd like to add is diversity is very much multifaceted. And by this, I mean, for a long time, firms have focused on gender diversity and basically addressing the gender imbalance we have in the workplace. And over the last two or three years, firms have then also focused on ethnic diversity, again, looking at to address the relative imbalance between their internal makeup versus the makeup of the wider society they exist in. And these two are hugely important diversity areas where the job is not yet done and, you know, we must not relent. But for any given individual, gender and ethnicity, these are just two diversity attributes. You know, there's your sexual orientation, your primary language, are you fluent in a secondary language or secondary languages, what's your immigration status, what's your cultural heritage, your educational background, your family economic status, and so on. And because of this multifaceted compass, I think it's important to recognize that most of us benefit from certain privileges because of these diverse attributes, but almost all of us also suffer from certain prejudices as a result of these unique attributes. For example, I am a straight male of Indian origin who was born and brought up in Kenya, went to university in the UK, and the only language I can speak fluently and with any authority is English. Now, working at UBS and being male, straight, and fluent in English, which English is the official language of UBS, gives me a huge advantage and a certain unearned privilege. But on the other hand, living and working in Switzerland, I have experienced certain prejudices because I'm an ethnic minority, I have an immigrant status, and I speak German, quite frankly, really badly. But I think the main point here is that we need to look at both the holistic setup of an organization and almost certainly gender and ethnicity stand out as holistically imbalanced in most firms, but also recognize all the other diversity attributes that are at play at an individual level. So, Maura, coming to you now, how do we turn then this from a trending topic of race and ethnicity into something that needs to be an absolute business imperative? Race and ethnicity is more than a trending topic. In fact, I've been in a DE&I role for more than 20 years now, albeit all in financial services and all in the US. And it's never not been a DEI topic for me, or if you're a professional in the DEI space, or if you're a person of underrepresented ethnicity. And yet in those 20 years that I've been involved, we've not made significant progress in our industry on increasing the representation of underrepresented talents throughout our organizations, bottom to top. Perhaps part of the reason for the slow progress is that we're not effectively leveraging the business opportunity around DEI. We know that diversity in talent and experiences and thought fuels innovation, but historically the external demands have not necessarily matched the internal desire to leverage diversity for business benefit. That external demand changed dramatically last year. Now more than ever clients, investors and communities and increasingly employees are calling for real business products, platforms, and services to expand and grow diverse client markets and opportunities. And they're calling for this because there's real business opportunity and because it is also socially the right thing to do. We just need to listen to them and deliver on what they're asking for, just like we deliver on what our clients ask for us every day. If we do that, then not only will we realize the business imperative but I believe we'll also be much more likely to achieve sustained focus 
and accelerated progress across our workforce objectives as well. And Karen, there's a commonly used saying that you can't be what you can't see, which is why I guess role models can play a very big role in supporting racial minorities in the journey to success, being able to look up and to relate to someone that one can identify with is really important to see that representation. So pardon the pun, but what role would you say that role models play? This is a really important topic and one that's very personal to me. If I reflect today on where my career began, I'm surprised that I've made it this far. I'm a first-generation Chinese-American. My parents moved to the States in the late 60s for graduate school and they started their family in Boston. When I was born, my dad, who'd been struggling to find steady work as an engineer, opened a Chinese grocery store. And some of my earliest childhood memories involve eating shrimp chips and watching cartoons on the little black and white in the back room. Eventually, my dad got a job in the government, and we settled in a leafy suburb, where I was one of only a handful of Asian kids in my class. I didn't have any family or cultural role models in law, or in banking, or corporate America in general. When it came time to interview, there were no family friends that I could call on for references or advice. I didn't speak the same professional or social language as my classmates. We spoke mostly Mandarin at home, not English, and certainly not corporate or country club speak. I recall that I had to figure out how to use a knife with a fork to prepare for a recruiting dinner. I had never heard of the Hamptons before I started working. But on a more serious note, no one ever told me the value of a clerkship or a stint in government And apart from what I'd seen on TV, I had no understanding of what a legal career entailed or the importance of having a sponsor or mentor. I just did what I'd always done, which was try to blend in and put in the hours with mixed success at times. I remember being called into the office one weekend and a partner who wasn't happy with a first draft asked me to read it out loud and then he asked me if English was my first language, which it is. Banking was even more abstract. When I graduated from Dartmouth in the late 90s, The most coveted jobs were analyst positions at one of the big banks like Goldman, Solomon, Lehman. And you definitely, you had to be a top performer to land one of those positions. But undoubtedly, there was a predominance of white men going into those roles. It was simply not something I considered. Mara is absolutely right that we haven't made enough progress to increase representation. Let's look at some numbers to put this into context. In 2020, the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services issued a report finding that Boards of directors and senior leadership are still mostly white men and generally don't match the diversity of the general workforce. While 42% of Harvard Business School graduates are women, women only account for 19% of positions of power. At VCs, PE firms, and hedge funds, those numbers go down even more. You've probably heard about the research showing that girls with moms who work in a STEM field are more likely to work in finance than a boy in the same situation. Forbes magazine describes this as a chicken and egg problem. Women are less likely to pursue careers in financial markets if they don't perceive role models, and the field can't generate role models without growing a base of women professionals. If we take this idea and consider persons of color or persons from immigrant families without role models or sponsors from their communities, they may face the same hurdles. Working in finance may not be something that would even occur to them as a feasible option, and even if they make it into the front door, they may lack the emotional support or that common social language to successfully navigate that environment. I wish that everyone would be taught first the importance of looking for a strong sponsor, regardless of whether you share a common background, someone who can help you navigate tricky situations and help clear obstacles along your path to success. The best professional advice I ever got was early on at UBS when a senior woman in the legal department told me I should speak up more in meetings 
that my input was valuable and that I should not be so quick to defer to others. I owe a lot to her. But on top of that, organizations need to understand and then take actions to address the problem that underrepresented talent may not feel that they have a path to success if they aren't able to see role models who are themselves thriving. It's really interesting to hear, you know, all of your comments so far from the three of you. Myself, I'm a Portuguese native living in London, working in a language that's not my own. So a lot of these themes really do resonate with me. Chetan, let me turn the next question to you now. We know that DEI is big on the agenda for many corporations, but, you know, I question how many are living it. What are your thoughts on theory when compared to practice? Yes, the uh, inevitable question of whether DE&I is just lip service at a firm. I think at some level, most people agree that strong DE&I is both the right moral choice and, and the right business choice. But it's not easy converting this theoretical right thing to do into a practical thing done well. It takes a lot of conviction and continuous effort, as Mara said, from the whole organization at every level. And I guess it's a process that's never really completed on, and it's something that we start and we just need to keep doing and, and improving on. And the way I like to think about this is to break it down into three broad areas. The first is bring in diverse talent, that's hiring. Second, develop this diverse talent through inclusivity and then ensuring equitable outcomes. And lastly, retain this diverse talent as best as possible, because guess what, your top competitors will also be seeking that very same diverse talent, the so-called war on talent. One way we improve hiring diverse talent is to make sure our interviewing groups, that is the people who are doing the interviewing, is reflective of the type of future workforce we want to attract. So if you have an interview panel full of men, well, guess what? You're far more likely to end up with a male candidate getting the job. But I imagine you're a woman of color, age 30, looking for a new job, and you're down to two firms. With firm A, you meet one man after another during the whole process, all of whom are over 40. Whilst with firm B, you meet one 45-year-old white man, probably the head of the department, but you also get interviewed by someone of the same ethnicity as you, and then also by a woman, and at least one of the interviewers is of similar age. All things being equal, which firm would you choose? But more importantly, the kind of conversations that happens at an interview stage with a diverse set of interviewers is exactly the kind of conversations we want to see happen throughout the individual's career. Another example on hiring would be job adverts for roles. It's fairly common knowledge that people from different diverse backgrounds react to certain language or choice of words very differently. Now I'm stereotyping heavily here, but most men will round up their ability, and I'm guilty of doing this myself, and most women will round down their ability. And I've observed this firsthand managing teams of men and women. So. If a job advert advertises a mandatory minimum of 10 years experience, a man with seven years experience is likely to apply, and a woman with nine years experience is likely to think the job does not apply to her. Now, there are some neat fixes to this nowadays. For example, there are free online tools where you can copy paste your proposed job ad, and it lets you know how gender neutral it is, and also make suggested changes. Now, if we move on to the second part, the develop and retain part of the equation, that is, once you've got diverse talent in, how do you make them feel included and how do you create an environment that's both equitable and then they stay? Techniques such as having representative role models, as Karen mentioned, are very important, as are employee-run diversity networks where regular employees with the support of HR form a common group. For example, a pride employee network that celebrates the diversity of sexual orientation in the workplace. 
But there are also some more radical approaches. For example, with reverse mentoring at UBS, we take a junior minority group, say an ethnic minority, and we get them to be mentors to a much more senior majority group of mentees. So in this case, you might have a 25-year-old associate who is black and from Nigeria mentoring a 50-year-old managing director who is white and Swiss. Now, these are all things we've implemented at UBS with varying degrees. And as I said earlier, it's a never-ending process. And whilst we're quite proud of what we do, this will keep developing. So how do we ensure that ethnicity remains a core focus in DEI? and Mora, I'll put this question to you. Not to oversimplify, I think the answer is threefold. First, as Karen said earlier, and Chetan has also said, we need more visible, much increased ethnic diversity in the senior ranks of our organizations. And to be clear, workforce diversity is still a goal. Why do we need more ethnic diversity at the senior levels? Because it's at the senior levels of any organization that makes the decisions on what gets delivered to its existing and future client base and its employees. And it's also from where organizational change is led and sustainability is built. Without robust diversity at the senior levels, then decisions and change are being made by people who are not widely representative of the people they lead or the clients and communities they serve. Having more diversity at the top in leadership and decision-making ranks will ensure that ethnic diversity remains a focus. Because in the end, if leadership is not representative of its employees across all ranks, clients, and communities, then eventually they become irrelevant and extinct. Second, increasing or creating a culture of inclusion and belonging needs to be taken much more seriously. This is where the rubber meets the road. There's an old adage, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And culture is local. So if culture is local, then by definition, it is local managers who create culture. For two decades, I believe we've been overly focused on hiring. Of course, hiring is important. We need to establish critical mass. But hiring to the detriment of building cultures where everyone feels they belong. We hire at the junior levels and then think our work is done. For anyone who's ever played or coached a sport, you know that it's relatively easy to assemble a team. To get that team to win, to get the most out of each player, it's not as easy. We tend to hire people and think, all right, that's done, on to the next. When in fact, it's at mid-career that most talent, and in particular ethnic talent, women, and other underrepresented talents stall, feel invisible, become disenfranchised, and ultimately leave their organizations. We cannot have true and lasting diversity without a culture of inclusion. And again, I think too little focus has been given to this aspect of the DEI work. We have a ton of space to do, and it's arguably the hardest part of DEI. And the third point on how to ensure ethnicity remains a core focus is through accountability, transparency, and measurement. This discipline must be part of how we manage the DEI work. We must measure progress, hiring through promotion, through retention, as Chetan said, and business growth by the metrics, KPIs, OKRs, just like we do our business, whatever that business may be. If you don't know what your goal is and you do not measure your progress towards it, how is it that you can possibly achieve it? In the last year, we've seen a big uptick in accountability, transparency, and measurement in our industry and across others. And I'm hopeful that if we stick with it, the discipline of accountability 
will become part of our DNA for DEI, just like other dimensions of our business. Karen, there's a real need for you know sincere authenticity, particularly when we talk about DEI, so it doesn't become just a box ticking exercise. How do we do that then? What does it mean to be authentic? Last summer, a lot of companies hosted town halls and panels where employees shared their experiences and reactions to what was happening. At UBS, we called these real talk, and that's exactly what they were. It was heartbreaking to hear my colleagues describe the burdens they've carried and that they continue to carry. They really inspired me to share my own experiences so that others might feel that they have a safe space. I also felt I had to examine where maybe I haven't been doing or saying enough to help others, or where I simply need more education. No one knows everything, no one has all the answers, and certainly no one is perfect when it comes to these issues. So to be an authentic role model of DE&I, it starts with being self-aware and humble, being willing to accept the reality that others may be suffering, and then being willing to face these difficult and stressful topics head on. I want to share something that a colleague who's African-American once said in an email asking for allyship. She said, I know it can be difficult and stressful addressing these issues, but imagine having to do both, to have to experience them and to constantly talk about it. Being an authentic leader is about putting yourself in the shoes of others and being willing to share your own vulnerabilities. In an industry like ours, which may still have a reputation for being a bit macho, this could be particularly impactful. I read an article recently about the history of the New York office as people are starting to trickle back into offices. And there was a little vignette about big law culture in the late 90s that resonated with me. The writer talks about rule number one. As a woman, you can't cry. I would cry in the bathroom sometimes. I've definitely shed my share of tears in bathrooms and empty meeting rooms. Anywhere I had to go to avoid colleagues from thinking that I'm not as strong as the men in the room. And here's the thing. We're all human beings with emotions, with fears, with lived trauma. They are what make us who we are. But by demonstrating curiosity about others, about what they've been through, about the journey that they've taken, you are showing that you don't want and you don't expect them to hide or change who they are to fit in, in order to be valued. That is what I think authenticity means and is a key element of the equation that Chetan mentioned. Real talk doesn't have to be formal or choreographed. Like Maura said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Real talk should become embedded in the DNA of the organization, reflecting a belief that our differences, our uniqueness, that's actually what connects us. Well, Chetan, let's say then that we manage to overcome some of the obstacles that we've mentioned so far in our conversation and, you know, that corporations find themselves in a place where they're actively practicing DE&I. What does that mean in terms of the abundance of potential? I love this question. As I've already said, in addition to DNI being the right moral and ethical thing to do, we must also look at the business case for DNI. Most teams don't do this. They don't look at the business case. And the few that do often look at the business case of today. That is, will a diverse workforce make us higher performing today? Or is our workforce a better reflection of the diverse clients we service today? But I argue that a diverse workforce today doesn't just deliver better outcomes in the short term, it's absolutely critical for the longer term future of any firm. Every firm's long term existence will depend on how innovative they are today. That is not just how much impact or money they make today, but how agile and entrepreneurial they are today to continue to make that impact 
and profit in the future. But the challenge to being innovative, agile and entrepreneurial is that it requires generating new business ideas. And it's not just one or two business ideas, it's lots and lots of ideas. And the biggest challenge of this idea generation process is creativity. So imagine a homogenous team, say a team of people that look just like me, 45 years old, of Indian origin, born and brought up in Kenya. I can almost guarantee this team will come up with the same boring, redundant ideas. Whilst a heterogeneous team, on the other hand, say one made up of different ages, people from different educational backgrounds, different cultures, different genders, hitting all those multifaceted attributes I mentioned before, and basically people who have all had vastly different experiences in their lifetime, that team is going to be a lot more creative. Ergo, diversity leads to creativity, creativity leads to ideas, ideas leads to innovation, and innovation leads to the long-term relevance and success of a firm. There is one big caveat though, and that's being inclusive of this diverse talent and allowing for the ideas to flourish. Because diversity without inclusivity is chaos and resentment from everyone, but diversity which is respected by everyone and included is very powerful. Lastly on this point, in a world where we are digitizing everything, automating processes, using artificial intelligence and robotics to replace certain tasks and even jobs, the real big differentiator for any team is not whether they can work faster or more efficiently, guess what, a machine will beat you that any day, it's which team is more creative and innovative. And creativity and hence diversity is a team's competitive edge and differentiator for the future. And I guess just finally, more I'll come to you for the last question, reflecting on everything we've heard so far in our conversation. Then what can we do to help educate people and organizations? While organizations can supply training on unconscious bias, race, and importantly, inclusive leadership, organizationally delivered training is not a panacea for the awareness, understanding, an empathy that is intentionally, authentically, and deeply needed in order to have cultures of inclusion and belonging. We also cannot rely on our ethnic minority employees to teach managers and leaders about race and ethnicity, inequality, the barriers they face, or what a leader or manager should do for them and to create inclusive cultures. Rather, we need managers and leaders to know that as part of their role, they are obligated to invest their own personal time and energy into building their own awareness and competency in creating cultures of inclusion and belonging for everyone. And for everyone does not mean same for all. Leaders and managers need to embark on a personal journey of vulnerability and be willing to be seen as not having all the answers. They must also be willing to do the hard work and have difficult conversations in order to grow and evolve. Basically, it's living by this principle. I don't have to look like you to support you or promote you, but I do have to spend time getting to know you and getting to know what your experience is in order for me to best support you. And it's incumbent upon me to do that, given my role as a leader or manager. So lastly, any advice on what leaders can do to be more inclusive, getting a jumpstart on that personal learning journey? Yes, actually five quick tips here for leaders. Tip number one. Recognize your bias. This one is tough, but important. Karen talked about it up front. Before you can improve your inclusivity efforts, you must look at yourself in the mirror and come to terms with your own natural bias. Tip number two, amplify more voices. Again, we've talked a lot about this. Utilize your full team, hear their stories, learn their skills, 
let them be heard. Give them regular opportunities to be seen and visible by others. It's a way to build their credibility and yours. No one should have to sit the bench. Tip number three, promote accessibility. You must promote and encourage an accessible, flexible working environment these days. Remote work, work from home, work from anywhere, multiple channels of communication, accommodations for childcare, elder care, the list goes on. These are a number of ways in which you can support and encourage flexibility for all of your employees. Tip number four, be mindful in your communication. Check the ways in which you communicate with your team. Be mindful in the tone of your voice, what you say, and how it's directed. Equally important, be mindful of what you don't say. One of the competencies of emotional intelligence is interpersonal communication. Stepping up this skill is about desire to genuinely connect with another. Here's an example. Last year when the murder of George Floyd happened, or recently with the rise in Oppie hate crimes, did you say anything about it? If you had a black or Asian colleague on your team, did you ask them if they were okay? Or did you say nothing and go on with the days that followed as if nothing happened? Perhaps you even thought it was inappropriate to say anything. In particular, the murder of George Floyd dramatically and forever impacted our black colleagues, both inside and outside of the US. Events like that, and more recently, the Oppie hate crimes, these are the sharp tip of a mountain of tragedies and inequities that have been ever present for many of our colleagues and communities. Coming into a silent workplace, silent manager, silent colleagues, and in some cases coming into the workplace where their manager said, conversation on this topic is not appropriate for the workplace, reinforced the invisibility our colleagues feel. Communication and the absence of it plays a big role in inclusion. And finally, tip number five, be open-minded. This is crucial. Aside from mindfulness, being open-minded can only work in your favor. When you work in an environment with others, you come in contact with a multitude of employees and coworkers that are the polar opposite to you. And guess what? That's okay. That's one of the great parts about working in an office environment or a workplace environment. Meeting new people and learning new things is one of the many pluses in life. So when meeting people, especially those who you may perceive as different, Consider them, their life, and their talents with an open mind. Just because somebody doesn't fit your mold doesn't mean they need to be pushed aside. Again, no one has to sit the bench. Maura, Chetan, and Karen, thank you so much for joining us here on The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Thank, thank you, you so you. much. Very good. Thanks, guys. And that was Karen Yen, Chetantolia, and Maura Gallagher in conversation with Monocle's Carlotta Ribello. My thanks to all of them. And that's all for this special edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.